My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In today's episode, I consider a relationship between commerce and international law. Commerce itself is made of two elements. On one hand, we have resources, and the other, markets. So many of the international rules that have been developed have been about providing then international legal subjects with access to resources and access to the markets where the commodities could be bartered. I explore this relationship with a discussion on cotton. Cotton was the very first global manufacturing industry and is in fact the source of many of the laws that we have today, laws that pertain to trade, to banking, to finance, um, and even to intellectual property. All right, let's go ahead and reconvene, please. All right, so as I said to you, the question then is, where is Europe in this picture? And Europe is nowhere to be found. And Europe is nowhere to be found for the simple reason that Europe does not grow cotton. So of course it would not be involved in the cotton trade because it doesn't grow cotton. And yet, Europe ultimately came to dominate the trade in cotton. How so? Well, we have to look then at the strategy, the ways in which Europe inserted itself into the cotton manufacturing industry. And it's essential to consider how this took place because it then provides us with a deeper understanding of why the laws that exist in international economic law look the way they do. Now, what do I mean by that? Consider what I said to you at the outset. If you are religious and you are following a traditional authority, it is relatively straightforward to identify what you should and should not do. There are nuances, there are complexities, but ultimately I know that I have this source of norms of laws that I can rely upon. If I happen to be the member of a cult and I'm being told this is what I must do and I believe fully in this individual, then again, I know what I must do because I believe in this person. So those two traditional forms of domination or two historic forms of domination, one built in tradition and the other in the charisma of a leader, those were relatively straightforward in terms of which laws I had to follow. Which laws they adopted, one is based on these eternal principles and the other ones are arbitrary, that we know. But within a capitalist system, I have to adopt certain laws that are going to allow for the flourishing of economic activity. Now, does that mean protectionism? I put up tariffs? Well. At some point in time, it did. And in many sectors, it still does. Does it translate into subsidies to given sectors, particularly infant, infant sectors? Well, historically, it did. And in many places, it still does. 
Does it translate into open borders and free movement of goods? Again, it's the same answers. But in all of those instances, my focus, my emphasis, my aim is to enable the flourishing of trade, to enable the flourishing of commerce, to enable economic growth. Now, those aspirations, which many of us today take for granted. Are you interested in being in a society where the GDP shrinks? You want to be in a place. See, this is a moment where some of you who happen to be on your phones look up. You're like, no, hell no. <laughs> who wants to live there? Go back to Soviet Union, you call me. <laughs> this is the way it's presented. It's between economic growth right, or devastation. But that wasn't always the case because we were dealing with different normative orders. But as is pointed out by Poras in your piece for today, commerce itself has become sacrosanct. Commerce is the golden calf. That is what is celebrated. So all the laws that we devise are intended to aid in commercial activity. This is not good or bad. I am not taking a position on it. What I'm merely pointing out is that as capitalism emerged in Europe, as we had this separation between religion and law, there needed something else to intervene to provide those laws with rationality. Rationality does not exist in a vacuum. Rationality does not exist somewhere in the forest and I have to peek under a tree to find it. Rationality is linked to an aspiration. So in this case, economic growth, commercial activity, trade, all of those became the dominant aspirations. And as the dominant aspirations, these informed the international legal framework that we ultimately devised. So as the English, as Europeans more broadly, were looking for ways to enter, to integrate themselves into the cotton manufacturing industry, they began to leverage their advantages, to leverage their advantages. And if you think of this in relation to all that's taking place in Europe at the minute, the negotiations that happen with trade agreements, each one is trying to negotiate, to bargain for the best possible deal. So we look for what are my strengths? What are the advantages that I possess? And how can I bargain effectively with you? How can I create conditions where you are likely, more likely to comply with my demands? But again, recall what had taken place. We'd moved away from religiosity. So it wasn't about what was moral, it was 
what is in the national interest? Because we're dealing with a mercantile world. And that mercantile world eventually evolved into a liberal world that, as Adam Smith said, is driven by rational egoism. The self, self-interest. So everything that I'm describing about bargaining is not let me bargain to our mutual advantage. It is let me bargain to my advantage. The advantage of my state. The advantage of my company. Now, to reiterate, and this is an essential point, it is not saying that, oh, self-interest is bad and we should all be communitarian in our thinking. No, it is not that. The point is that the theories that were developed at the time to structure these new economies that were emerging were informed in the first instance by a type of Eurocentrism. How am I, as Europe, going to treat the rest of the world? In the second instance, mercantilism. What is in the interest of my nation state? How can I advance the economic interest of this putative national body? In the third instance, rational egoism. We can achieve general welfare. We can achieve collective well-being if we pursue, we enable, we stimulate, we allow everyone to pursue what is in their interest. That is how we achieve global welfare. These were the theories that were at play. And these theories ultimately gave rise to the legal system that we have. And they gave rise to this legal system specifically because as Max Weber had said, what was in place in Europe at the time was a rational legal system that was open, that was malleable, that could be structured any which way. There is nothing sacrosanct about a protectionist measure or a liberal measure. There is a choice between a protectionist measure and a liberal measure. That is it. Nothing sacrosanct about one or the other. But those theories ultimately informed the laws that we adopted. Now we're dealing with a mercantile period, and so how did England, that had no relation whatsoever to the cotton sector, how did it integrate itself? How did it inject itself? And the answer, unfortunately, is violently. That is it. It used violence as a means of obtaining a dominant place within the cotton manufacturing industry. How so? The first thing that they did was to sink the ships of other merchants. The English had developed a very impressive fleet, a fleet of ships, and they had sizable firepower. And they also had no qualms about using it. But remember, it is not the English as England, but the English East India 
company. Private capitalists flying the flag of this nascent nation state. And so, sinking ships, seizing the goods of these merchants, blockading ports to prevent others from departing with the textiles. They did this in different parts of India. They did this in different parts of South Asia. For anyone who is looking for a blatant case study, do a little bit of research on what are referred to as the opium wars. It does not get any more blatant than that and ultimately conveys precisely how international trade was mediated at the time. Now this is where as England began to blockade, as they began to sink the competition, as they began to create dependencies between, and this is an interesting one, dependencies between the local merchants and themselves, whereby the local merchants could only sell to the English East India Company. Regulations, rules that were enforced violently. They began to develop a trans-oceanic commodity supply chain. Consider how it begins. They would get the textiles from India. Remember, they had a route around Africa, back to Europe. They arrive in Europe. They sell these goods in Europe. Spanish ports, French ports, British ports, Dutch ports, Danish ports. Where did they also transport them? They also transported them to the African continent. They took them to the African continent where they would exchange these textiles for slaves. Why did they need slaves? Because they had already expropriated the natives in the Caribbean and in what later came to be known as the United States, but United States, Mesoamerica, that whole area. So they had expropriated the natives, so there was all this land, very fertile land, for the growing of cotton. But because you had expropriated, often massacred, it's one of the most successful genocides in human history, because he had wiped out the native population, you actually needed labor. And so now we have textiles being obtained from Asia, being sold in Europe, exchanged in Africa for slaves that would then labor in the Americas. Fascinating the way it played out. In this way, this action, the willingness to use violence to inject itself into the commodity chain, then enabled Europe to acquire two things, resources and markets. What did they need? They needed resources and markets. They couldn't grow cotton in Europe, 
So now they're growing cotton in the Caribbean, in Mesoamerica, in the Americas as a whole. And they realize, I don't have to just grow cotton, I can also grow sugar. And I can also grow other types of produce. I can grow, I can transport the potato. For any Irish in the room, thank the Mayans. If it wasn't for them, you would not have an Irish stew, which you really should call a Mayan stew. So now we have all of these crops that are being grown. Indigo is another one which is used to dye textile, used to dye the thread. All of this is being grown in these areas by an enslaved population. So I now have free resources and I now have free labor. And the markets I am in control of because I'm sinking the competition. Not just metaphorically, literally. And so for those of you who have done the preliminary reading that I assigned for this module, who would have read some of Hajun Chang's work, he doesn't always go that far back in history. But he does point to some of the international economic laws that emerged at this time. And this is what I'd like to talk to you about now. Because all of this is taking place, and all of this we say, oh, this is a type of piracy, this is a type of history lesson, looking at how bad Europeans are. One of your classmates during the break is saying, oh, I feel kind of guilty. Yeah, you should. <laughs> no, it's not about you feeling guilty. It's pointing out then that this is the history, and this history has itself created the commodity chains, the type of economic system that we operate with today. And recall then, we spoke about mercantilism already and we spoke about liberalism. And I also told you that a key theory in international political economy is Marxism. And Marxism, they're interested in understanding how then, who owns the means of production? How are essentials produced? And by studying how the essentials are produced, studying the evolution of that production, I come to understand how societies are structured. So when people talk to me about, oh, the developed world and the developing world, the first world and the third world, Europeans are ingenious, and all those other ones should really follow our lead. We say, well, which theory are you talking about this from? In fact, do you even know the meaning of the word theory? Because if we study history, we see then that there were a variety of activities that created the world as we have it today. And one of those activities was principally legal. So, as I said, Europe, I'm pointing to England largely because of that, but ultimately then you had a variety of European companies that were involved. The companies are flexing then their military might. They're flexing their military might as a way then to control the trade around cotton. And they're using this as a way to drive down costs. How so? Some of the regulations that were adopted at the time, which are relevant for the study of this subject. Some of the regulations. Merchants, first weavers and then merchants, were prohibited from selling on the open market. 
They could not sell to any competition. They were now required to sell to specific companies. Those companies had a monopoly on the purchase, on the commodities, on the goods that were being produced by the spinners, the weavers, the growers. Anyone heard of competition law? This is where competition law questions began. Because other people started to complain, no, 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 why should they sell exclusively? I want to sell on the open market. No, there is now a contract between us that requires you to sell directly to me and to no one else. Have all of those contracts been eliminated? No longer in existence? Anyone here heard of Monsanto? Monsanto is a very large transnational company that deals with primarily seeds and the inputs to grow crops. Do a search when you have a moment, when you're looking up opium wars, do a search for Monsanto and the contracts and see that contracts that are in operation today provide an obligation on certain growers in relation to who they can sell their outputs to. So regulations that preclude sales on the open market. There were a series of sanctions that were devised and then imposed on weavers who did not comply with the terms of the contract. And we're not referring to economic sanctions, but criminal sanctions. Because the companies themselves had now established such a grip on the activities within that locale that they could dictate law and punishment. They also de devised a system of agents to bypass the local merchants. So I said to you, everything was done at the household level and everything is still taking place at the household level. We're in the 17th century now, closely approaching the 18th century, or no, we're in the 18th century and approaching the 19th century. Households are growing the crop, spinning the crop, weaving the crop, selling it to merchants, local merchants, who are taking it then to the coastal towns for sale. Well, what are these merchants doing? Well, jacking up the price, as they would. Now, I give you a story to explain it to you. I travel to Morocco quite frequently. My parents have lived in Morocco for a number of years. So I'm in a coastal city called Tangier. Some of you are familiar with it. It's in the north of Morocco. I'm in this coastal city, and I wake up early one morning, and my father and I go to the beach. And he says he wants to be there in the morning when the fishermen come in so he can get some fresh fish. So the fishermen arrive, and then I'm witnessing this. I'm watching. There's an auction that begins. Now imagine this group, right? All of you then, right, are fishers. And then you have the three of you who are buyers. And the three of you are now running. There's someone else here, myself, running the auction. And I'm running the auction. Boom, boom, boom. Ultimately, you win. And you get all the produce. Now, we're standing there, and we're having this conversation. And then now, you turn, and you have a secondary auction. And you have a secondary auction with all of these 
retailers, retailers and restaurants who want to buy it. Now, you have that, this takes place. We're standing there and I'm waiting. And then in the end, now my father says, now we can ask, hey, how much for? And this is who we trade with. And I say, why didn't we just ask the fishermen? Why did I have to go through these different right, middlemen in the way? And I keep saying fishermen and middlemen, they're all men. <laughs> Why do we have to go? Because that is the way trade takes place. There are these established networks. And then I said, but why don't I just approach one of them? Son, that's not a good idea. And historically, that is the case. And many of you have similar experiences. This is not so right, unique. So precisely this system is in place in India. And they want to bypass that. Why? Because I can drive down costs by buying directly from the source. So they establish agents. They begin to hire agents to go directly to the growers, who are also the spinners and also the weavers. And they, in the process, eliminate the competition. Now, think of, from a production perspective, the important shift that has taken place. Prior to this, you are a household. You have a certain autonomy. You are growing crops from a subsistence perspective, and you are trying to earn a little bit on the sly with this small textile occupation. That is it. But now, you're buying directly from the agent, and the agent says, okay, can you double production? I'll give you twice as much. Can you triple production? I will give you three times as much. And then as this happens, a specialization emerges, and we begin to see a division of labor, because now there are households dedicated almost entirely to the production of textiles. And then I say, you know what, how about we split it up? Why don't you spin and you weave? And you weave and you spin. And then I set it up in a way as a parcel where now all the spinning is taking place and all the weaving is taking place elsewhere. And notice the specialization that happens. Now there are many advantages to this. Greater efficiency in production. That in itself means more textiles, which means greater revenue. But of course, all of that is contingent on the share that each one is taking along the way. But what is also interesting and what is also forgotten often is or are the losses. That autonomy that existed has been exchanged for something else. Dependency, because I am now dependent on a wage. And what was being developed at the time was one of the very first waged laborer classes. You already had that in England because not everybody could own sheep. They were too costly. So you had people who were there just to shear and you had those who were there just to weave. You already had that labor class. And that model was then transported to India. So we're looking then at this system that emerges 
now these merchants are squeezed out of the picture. There's a direct line between the growers, the spinners, and the weavers, and the foreign merchants. And there's now a dependency that is created, not just on the foreign merchants, but also on the foreign markets. And so in the end, as often the case with commercial activity, is gains are made by disrupting the practices of others. That is it. It's not good or bad. That is precisely the way this takes place. Unfortunate for those who miss out and fortunate for those who gain.